You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Uh, this year actually marks the eighth year uh, that we've devoted our Januaries to mercy and justice issues as a church. Uh, and the goal, of course, and our prayer as, as leaders of the church is, is not that this, is it, this would not just be a, you know, a one-month-a-year kind of initiative and then we kind of forget about it till next January, but that God would use this as a, as a catalyst and he would continue to spur us on and on more and more to be people of mercy, people of his justice in the world. Uh, we want to do this every January to really begin the new year thinking about this and pursuing this. We want to begin the new year thinking about how we can respond to the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, how we can live in light of that, how we can be people who reflect the very mercy that we've received from him. So just want to invite you at the outset to really invest yourself fully in this. Uh, Take the time to learn uh, on our website the things that are, you know, learn, pray, and act. Jump into those things. Pray with us on Wednesday nights. Uh, It would just be a real gift to do this together as a community and pray that God really works in us and through us uh, both this month and and months to follow. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to be in Deuteronomy 15. So you can can make your way there, Deuteronomy 15, if you want, page 159 of those black hardcover Bibles. But let me pray for us, uh, and then we'll dive into that. Jesus Christ, Son of God, you humbled yourself and you became a servant. You became poor so that through your poverty, we might inherit the riches of God's eternal kingdom. We were in darkness, and you have given us light and strength. You have given us peace and joy. So lead us, even now, according to your loving will. Make us a people who follow you in holiness. Give us generous hearts, and even now, give us open ears to hear your word. Produce in us abundant fruit by the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray this all, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. This is Deuteronomy chapter 15, and I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you'd be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy, and to the poor in your land. This is God's word. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is retelling God's law to the people of Israel at the end of their 40-year wandering in the wilderness. So Moses is near the end of his life. He's about to die. Joshua is about to take over leadership of the people and lead them into the promised land. Before that happens, Moses goes back over the entire law of God a second time. That's actually what Deuteronomy means, a second telling of the law. And he's reminding them how to live as truly free people, 
how not to return to slavery in Egypt, or how not to return to some other form of slavery of, of their own making. And in chapter 15 of Deuteronomy, Moses starts to talk about forgiving debts and about poverty. And though our context, and I'm sure you felt this as I read it, is certainly different from theirs, the principles here remain intact. And I think there's so much in Deuteronomy 15 that's incredibly needed and relevant for us for how we should faithfully think about and navigate poverty in our world. So four things that we're just going to briefly walk through with the rest of our time this morning. Posture, pitfalls, remedy, and realities. Posture, pitfalls, remedy, and realities. So first, posture, or how should we esteem poor people, people that are in poverty? How should we relate to them? How should we think about them? And I want you to notice two things at the very start of this text. First, that Moses is setting up, God's law is setting up a hypothetical. If someone becomes poor, here's what to do. We didn't get to read it, but a few verses earlier in verse 4, God said, there should be no poor people among you. It shouldn't happen. But if someone were to become poor, respond like this. And then second, that this is an internal command for God's people. It says, if one of your brothers, meaning a fellow Israelite, if a, if a brother becomes poor, so it's not talking about people from other tribes and other nations that, that the people of Israel would be around as they moved into the promised land. And so as we read this, you know, centuries and centuries later, maybe we're supposed to conclude that our obligation to those in poverty is only reactive and internal. So, so only if poverty comes right to our doorstep and only if it's one of our own people, then we have some obligation to respond and be generous. But if we're tempted to narrow things down, I want you to zoom out and to see the bigger picture of, of the whole counsel of God in this. When Jesus comes into the world, uh, when he offers himself up on the cross, when he rises from the dead, the kingdom of God is now open to people of all tongues and tribes and nations, not just Israel. And so commands like this about serving our brothers have all kinds of implications for us in the church. For, for people who now through Christ are the people of God, have become the people of God through faith in him. Paul will go on to write, for example, in Galatians chapter 6, let us do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. What's more though, when Jesus is traveling around in his earthly ministry, when he's back in his hometown of Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, he stands up in the synagogue there in Nazareth, someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah, he unrolls it, to this place, Isaiah 61, where he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to who? To the poor. To the poor. And he reads a few more verses and he says, Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus came into the world for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. But he makes specific mention of those in poverty. And he's saying there, in essence, if they've been neglected as they have by other kings, if they've been neglected by other kingdoms, they will not be neglected by this one. We see Jesus then live that out during his life and ministry. And we see that ministry picked up and carried forward by his apostles and by the early church. In other words, rather than being reactive and internal, to follow Jesus means we go proactively into the world. We proclaim Jesus' good news to all people 
But we especially proclaim his good news to the poor. We don't neglect them. We tell them of God's great love and God's compassion for them. We long for them to become, and by the grace of God, some of them do become brothers and sisters in Christ, which actually means then that we're that much more obligated to then care for their material needs. See, we, we should be looking for more people that we are obligated to care for. We, we should be looking for more people that we are bound to open our hands to. Is that not completely counterintuitive and countercultural? Are we not instead often looking for how to minimize our obligations, for how to meet you know, whatever the minimum standard is? And the minimum standard, if we, if we really pour ourselves out in this, the minimum standard feels burdensome enough, does it not? Are we really supposed to proactively go looking for more people to open our hands to? Well, maybe some of you remember this conversation that Jesus had with a teacher of the law. And this teacher of the law was talking with Jesus about eternal life and about the commands of God. And he ended up talking to Jesus about who his neighbor was. And he asked him that question. He said, who is my neighbor? And he asked that question to Jesus specifically because he was trying to narrow down the definition of who he was obligated to care for. And Jesus' response is what we now know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Instead of shrinking down that definition, making it merely internal or reactive, Jesus blew the definition wide open. The Samaritan was the one who went way out of his way to help. The Samaritan was the one who crossed major racial and cultural barriers to help. It wasn't just his own people. See, whenever you and I approach God's word, God's law, seeking to minimize the commitment, we have to be prepared to have our views shattered. (laughs) We have to be prepared to have our lives turned completely upside down. The law of God is kind of like a spring, like a big, heavy-duty mechanical spring. You can try to compress it down. You can use machines to compress it, but you better be ready for the recoil. You better be ready for the recoil. All of that to say our, our posture toward those in poverty should be proactive. We should be looking for more people to care for. We should be laboring for people not only to be cared for materially, but that they would actually become brothers and sisters in Christ. We should be running always toward those who are in poverty, not away from them. Second, second, let's talk about pitfalls. This passage highlights two hidden dangers which will keep us from being generous to those in poverty. And those two pitfalls are unworthy thoughts and grudging eyes. Verse 9, looking at verse 9, Take care, right? We have to be careful because these things are deceitful. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought, and a little bit later, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother. So unworthy thoughts, what are those? Well, in chapter 15, Moses has been talking about the sabbatical year. Every seventh year was a year of release where people's debts were forgiven. And so the closer you were to a seventh year, the less likely it was for a poor person to repay a loan, any money that you had given them, the less likely they were to repay. And therefore, the less likely, the less motivated an Israelite person would be to be open-handed and to actually lend money. And we look at that centuries later, and I'm sure many people in their own time looked at that and said, well, yeah, that's understandable. Uh, It's not a wise financial move to loan out money that will never get repaid. Our country tried that with mortgages from like 2000 to 2008. 
Not a wise financial move. It didn't go well, right? But here's what I want you to hear, church. Sometimes understandable thoughts are unworthy thoughts. Sometimes understandable thoughts are unworthy thoughts. God does not call this kind of calculating, efficient mind understandable. When it leads someone to close their hand to the poor, God calls that unworthy. Now, we don't practice a a Sabbath year like the Israelites did, but we must also take care lest our understandable thoughts be unworthy thoughts. For example, maybe you've thought some of these things like I have. Why should I give this person my money when there's a good chance they'll waste it? Or what if they don't use this financial gift wisely? Or what if they even use it for self-destructive things? What if they use it to fuel an addiction? Understandable thoughts and questions. And certainly as we get into relationships with people in poverty and we walk with them, holistic care for people, love for people, means that we not enable destructive habits. We don't want to inadvertently hurt people as we're trying to help them. But if that is leading us to close our hands as a result, if it's leading us toward an aversion to poor people, if it's leading us away from poor people rather than toward them, then our thoughts have become unworthy, not understandable. So unworthy thoughts are one pitfall. The other here on Deuteronomy 15 is a grudging eye, or in the original language, an evil eye. At our men's retreat uh, a couple months back, Alec Millen, who serves as the pastor of a sister church of ours in Lancaster, One City Church, uh, he brought new light, at least to me and and maybe to many of us who were able to be there for that, uh, to what this concept is. The, The evil eye is this theme that actually runs throughout all of Scripture and especially the Old Testament. The evil eye is is a stingy or an ungenerous way of looking at the world. It's an ungenerous way of looking at people. If it gives at all, the evil eye is not giving cheerfully or compassionately, it's giving grudgingly. So I kind of think of this as like Ebenezer Scrooge when the people come to his office to collect money and he says about the poor, you know, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? I think about Mr. Potter from It's a Wonderful Life, and though he can't possibly spend all the money he has, saying to George Bailey's dad, oh, I suppose I should give it to miserable failures like you to spend it for me then. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus picks up on this theme when he talks about money. In his famous sermon on the mount, he starts talking about money and he says, don't lay up treasures on earth, lay them up in heaven instead. He says, you cannot serve God and money. And right in the middle of all that, he says this, if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. And that's a statement which really seems out of place until you realize he's talking about exactly this, the evil eye, the grudging eye. If you you and I are stingy with our money, especially toward those in poverty, not only will we neglect God's law, But as Jesus is saying there, our whole body will be full of darkness. In other words, it affects far more than our approach to money. It means something has gone horribly wrong in our perspective, in our overall outlook in life. It means we're not only going to neglect God's commands, God's law in this one area, but we're going to participate in darkness in other areas of our life as well. People who maybe are more like me in this regard, people who are savers, people who like to think about and like to make good financial decisions, people who are not impulsive or rash with their money, are almost always the same people who are tempted by stinginess. 
They kind of go hand in hand. They're like opposite sides of the same coin. That's why I'm calling this a, a pitfall. It's a hidden danger. It's a hidden danger. The praiseworthy and the God-glorifying pursuit of good financial stewardship can so easily, can so quickly become warped and twisted by sin and end up becoming an evil eye. So take care. Take care. Take care lest understandable thoughts become unworthy thoughts. Take care lest your pursuit of stewardship become stinginess. If your eye is evil, the whole body will be full of darkness. So we've talked about posture. We've talked about some pitfalls. Third, let's talk about the remedy. The remedy. If these unworthy thoughts and this evil eye, if these are the dangers, well, what's the remedy? Twice in this text, Moses, you know, speaking through, you know, on behalf of God, he speaks of an open hand, an open hand. But what we also see in Deuteronomy 15 is that an open hand requires an open heart. A hardened heart, verse 7, if your heart is hard, you'll close your hand. An open heart is what will lead to an open hand. And so the question, of course, becomes, how can we get this kind of open heart? What can we do? How can we get this open heart so that our hands will open in turn? And the answer is, you can't. You can't. Left to yourself, your heart is hard as stone. If you want an open heart, you need a new heart. You need the old one ripped out and a soft one put in its place, which is something that God alone can do. The Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane said it this way. He said, to give largely and liberally, not grudging at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its lifeblood than its money. And he then goes on to talk about how our money is a reflection of what we actually believe, which Of course, what we believe has eternal consequences. And Robert Murray McShane then says, Oh, my friends, enjoy your money. Make the most of it. Give none away. Enjoy it quickly. For I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. You see, Christian generosity is something altogether different from philanthropy. You can't read a book or take a class or model your life after some kind of celebrity or tech billionaire that gives away a lot of their money. You can't even like meet with a financial advisor and make a plan and thereby engineer an open heart. If you have a superiority complex toward those in poverty, if you find yourself attempting to shrink down God's law, if you find even maybe this morning that that you have unworthy thoughts or an evil eye, the only cure for that is to plead with God to give you a new heart. To break up What remains hard in the one you have or to completely rip out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh? And you will never plead with God like that until you first come face to face with the reality of your own poverty, of your own poverty, of your own desperate need for God to give you something that you can't possibly earn or deserve. Would you recognize with me this morning, you are a charity case. I am a charity case. And I don't know if there's a more offensive statement I could make to a room full of predominantly you know, educated, suburban, well-off, middle and upper middle class type folks. You are a charity case, and I am too. And until you really see that, until you believe that, you will never cry out to God for the new open heart you need, which means you'll never really open your hand in the way that God calls all of us, all of his people to open our hands. 
as someone who likes money way too much, as someone who really appreciates stewardship, as someone who has to battle unworthy thoughts and an evil eye, let me share with you perhaps the most powerful words I've ever heard about this. They were preached about a century ago by a man named B.B. Warfield. And he said this, Now, dear Christians, some of you pray to be made all over in the image of Christ. If so, you must be like him in giving. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. And B.B. Warfield then anticipates these objections that we might feel. Maybe we'd say out loud. Maybe we just would keep it to ourselves. I think he's got a really honest and accurate estimation of the kinds of objections that we raise. He goes on to say this. Objection number one, my money is my own. Answer, Christ might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where should we have been? Objection number two, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they are wicked rebels. Shall I lay down my life for these? I will give instead to the good angels. But no, he gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Christ may have said the same yet with far greater truth. Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood under their feet, that most would despise it, and that many would make it an excuse for sinning more. Yet he gave his own blood. Oh, my dear Christians, if you would be like Christ, give much, give often, give freely to the poor, to the thankless, and to the undeserving. See, it's truths like these which will help us see how much of a charity case we really are. When you see how much of a charity case you are, cry out to God. He will hear you. He will hear you, and he will give you a new and an open heart. So finally, let's talk about some poverty realities. There's a fascinating contrast that if we had more time, we would have read more of Deuteronomy 15. But in verse 4, I already mentioned this once, but in verse 4, God says, there will be no poor among you. And it's a command. He's saying, don't let there be any poor people among you. But then down in verse 11, as we did read, he says, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Well, which is it? Which is it? Are there not supposed to be poor people or will there always be poor people? Yes. The answer is yes. See, this is a very realistic assessment and it's tragic, but it's honest. Though there should be no poverty because of sin, because we have unworthy thoughts, because people will always have an evil eye, there always will be. So how should we respond? Well, God tells us in the very next statement, therefore, open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. In his book, which is called Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth, uh, the author named Thaddeus Williams highlights two fallacies, especially when it comes to to thinking about money and poverty. Uh, He calls them the activist fallacy and the apathy fallacy. And the realities that are highlighted here in Deuteronomy 15, I think, help us avoid both of those fallacies. So the activist fallacy is this. It's the idea that by our own efforts, you and I will be able to rid the world of poverty. And the heart behind that is beautiful. The zeal and the labors that it leads to and has led to are impressive. And if it were possible to outrun, if it were possible to do some kind of end around the sin nature of human hearts, it just might work. But of course, it's not possible to do an end around. There should be no poverty. Image bearers of God should not live in poverty, but as long as humanity has a sin nature, poverty will exist. Just a quick aside on this, but it feels very relevant and necessary. 
Socialism has become a hugely appealing philosophy and approach in our culture right now, especially to people in, in younger generations. My, this is just me speaking. This is not the word of God, but this is just me speaking. My biggest problem with socialism is not political. It's not even historical. My biggest problem with socialism is theological. It is not realistic about human nature. It is not honest about what is in the heart of a man or the heart of a woman. It tries to do an end around sin. In some ways, socialism tries to create an environment that resembles Jesus' kingdom where there is no poverty. And I think that's why, maybe at least among Christians, younger Christians, it's appealing. I commend, I commend the desire. I really do. But I condemn the lie. I condemn the lie. You cannot get Jesus' kingdom without Jesus. You can't. And because it's built on a lie about human nature, in practice, socialism almost always makes things even worse for people who are poor. Almost always. Which means that it's actually unloving. It's not actually the best way to love people who are in poverty. Now, don't hear me saying there that that's like a blank check affirmation of capitalism. Capitalism has its own pitfalls, not least of which is that it, it can and has fueled many kinds of unworthy thoughts and evil eyes in many people throughout its history. So don't hear that. But therein lies the other fallacy that Deuteronomy, I think, helps us avoid, which is the apathy fallacy. If the activist, if the activist is prone to be zealous and to rush into action, but maybe with shallow solutions, the apathetic person just remains unmotivated to do anything. So, well, what difference does it make? It's not going to change things. It's not going to solve things. Maybe you have a realistic, if that's you, maybe you have a realistic assessment of human nature. Maybe you even have a biblical understanding of this. There shouldn't be poor people, but sin means there always will be. Instead of becoming cynical, instead of becoming apathetic, God still calls you to act. You will not eradicate poverty. Therefore, open your hand. That's what Deuteronomy 15 says. You won't erase it, therefore open your hand. It's still exactly what you're supposed to devote yourself to. And get this, because there's maybe even a better reason to give to people who are in poverty than solving poverty. There's maybe even a better reason to do so. See, our open hands are a response to God's open hand. Our generosity is a response to Jesus' generosity. We open our hands not because we think poverty will end by our efforts, but because we know it will one day end by his. We know that when Jesus comes in the fullness of his kingdom, then there will be no poverty. And so there is no better use of your money in this short mist of a life that you and I have than to point to the worth of Jesus, to witness to his present and coming kingdom. If I can leave you with just one practical thing this week, and you heard Joe talk about it a little while ago on that video, it would be if you don't already have friendships and relationships with people who are in poverty, pursue that. Pursue a friendship with someone who's in poverty. Not as some kind of project, social experiment or something like that. I, I'm sure God will open your eyes to see ways you can help. But as Joe was saying, God uses relationships like this to change us. And you will find yourself amazed at what you will learn about faith, what you will learn about loyalty, what you will learn about perseverance from people who are in poverty. If you find yourself this morning completely unsure where to start that, like maybe your life just doesn't meaningfully intersect with people who are in poverty. I understand that. That can happen. But maybe that can happen by serving at New Hope. We have a group of people that serves there every Thursday night from Liberty Church. 
And I got to embarrass him during the first service this morning. Chester Epley has been serving there every Thursday night for like the past couple years. Chester just retired from his, from his weekly service at, uh, at New Hope. Got to honor him a little bit during the first service. But take his place. There's an opening for someone to come at New Hope and to serve regularly. Meet some friends through your time there. Or maybe it's through a community organization, something like even the YMCA. Um, some of you guys know Evan Sherman is the membership director at the West Shore Y. And I wasn't aware of this till a conversation with him a couple weeks ago. But a lot of people who have memberships at the West Shore Y apply for financial assistance with their membership. And if you, if you just kind of think about some of the stereotypes, Joe was talking about this a little bit too, you might think, well, maybe the East Shore Y in the middle of Harrisburg, that would have a lot of people who have financial assistance with their membership. He's like, no, it's a, it's a large percentage of people at the West Shore Y too. So wherever in this region you live, you know, we're already maybe thinking about New Year's resolutions and wanting to exercise more, something like that. Go take a class, go become a regular there, Meet some people and see if God doesn't just put someone in your path. Or maybe you already do know someone. Maybe there's someone even in your own neighborhood and you've been avoiding them because you know it will be hard, because you know it will be messy. And you're 100% right. It will be. It will be. It's exactly what you've been called to do as a son or daughter of God. Even more than that, even more than that, it is how you became a son or daughter of God in the first place. Though he was rich, for your sake, Jesus became poor so that by his poverty, you might gain the eternal riches of the grace of God, of the kingdom of God. So may Jesus give us new and open hearts. And from them, may we have open hands. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, by the power of your spirit, give us strength to live out this message that we have heard today. We confess that even with good intention to be good stewards, that our understandable thoughts can become unworthy, that our eye can become stingy and grudging and evil. Forgive us. Show us where we're doing that. Open our eyes to see the poverty around us. Move in our hearts. Remind us of the charity cases that we are. I pray even now as we come to this table this morning and we see how much of a charity case we were. That, that our sin required your humiliation, required your body and blood shed, broken for us. That as we come this morning, you would move in our hearts, reminding us of that great cost, but encouraging us that you have paid that cost, that it would just be our motive to go back out into this world, to love those who are in poverty as a reflection of your own generosity to us. We pray for the grace that we need to do this because everything in us will resist it. Everything in us will resist this. So break up what remains hard in our hearts or for any who need a new heart, rip out a heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.